Hi, and welcome to Teaching Plus, the podcast that introduces post-secondary instructors to strategies that you can use to enhance your teaching. This is Cosette Lemlin, an educational developer with the Centre for Teaching and Learning. I'm Neil Hovey. I'm an associate director here at the Centre for Teaching and Learning. I also am a professor of biology down at the Augustana campus of the University of Alberta. And it gives me such great pleasure to introduce Dr. Mary Ellen Weimer. She's the editor of the Teaching Professor website now. Um, she's a professor emerita at Penn State University and has won Milton S. Eisenhower Award for Distinguished Teaching. But uh, there's two books that you've written that I want to highlight because they were so important to me. There's the one that I've, most people know about. Uh, that's the Learner Center Teaching, Five Key Changes to Practice. That came out in 93, but then it was the second edition yeah, just recently. 2013 is the second edition. Yeah. Right. So that was really important for me because it really helped me think about how... Uh, we have to get the students' perspective in our teaching. But the other one that was really important to me that transformed me into what I'm trying to be as a scholarly teacher, enhancing scholarly work on teaching and learning professional literature, that makes a difference. The examples and how you unpack those examples in terms of how to do scholarship of teaching and learning was really influential to me. Well, thank you. So thank, thank you for you. coming here. I'd like to start off our conversation this afternoon with a, a question that a number of our instructors are asking around campus. Why do you think students resist active learning? Well, I have a really simple answer to that question. It's more work for students. And what they like is to be able to have education done unto them rather than being active participants in it. And so if the teacher all of a sudden stops giving the examples and starts asking the students to generate the examples, you can see how that's more work. Well, why not get the good examples that the teacher can provide? And so students start thinking that teachers aren't doing their jobs and start resisting because teachers are asking students to do the hard, messy work of learning which of course is essential for learning. So I always think about that as resistance for the right reason. They're resisting because it's more work, but it's work that really contributes to their learning. Which is so interesting because when they want the lecture and so you give them what they want, they typically look bored. You know, they're exactly. sitting on their smartphones, but, but as soon as you engage them and it's messy, right. but now they're interested. Yeah. So it, there's, yeah. for me, it's like they, there's some real cognitive dissonance in terms of yeah. what's enjoyable versus what's working. Yeah. Students who, well, and I also think yeah. the resistance grows out of the fact that to students it feels kind of threatening. Hmm. It's, you know, they sort of learned the rules of education in a lot of classes. So they come into our classrooms with expectations about how it's supposed to be done. And when a teacher starts messing, around with that and starts expecting students to do things that the teachers have usually done, they feel sort of threatened by that. You know, you've changed the rules. Uh, the game isn't the same. Exactly. And so because I think students are so strongly stressed by the need to get grades, the need for the right answer, the need to have the examples that were in the teacher's notes, in their notes, it comes from being not very empowered or confident learners, I think. Used to having teachers do too many of the learning tasks asks for them. So they find it threatening. Do you think that there are certain disciplines or certain areas of scholarship that lend themselves better to active learning than others? Like are there certain faculties or departments that have taken up active learning? Is it a question of the discipline or is it a question of the instructor? That's a really good question, and that is not a question I think we have tackled or sorted out very well in the literature. 
I think that in some of the fields where the knowledge is tightly configured and linear, or in order to understand B, you have to have understood A, mm -hmm. that the emphasis on that basic contact knowledge, what the ground rules that you have, the fundamental knowledge that you need, comes across more as, you know, sort of lecture transfer of information kind of things, which are more, it's like, you know, you and I have talked, Neil, you can't give students a blank copy of the periodic table and say, hey, here's the periodic table. This is a learner-centered class. Why don't you fill in the blanks? That's a waste of their time. So I think the configuration of the content does play a role in this, but I also don't think that the active learning strategies, which are sort of prolific in terms of the variety of kinds of things that you can do, I don't think there's any fields that you can't use those. And what's running through my mind is I did some work at SATE with a group of faculty members who taught in a very applied program. They were teaching students how to run those very, very high cranes. And, you know, I was just interested in how many of the aspects of active learning were applicable in that very, very applied field where there clearly are right and wrong ways of doing things. And yet they were really wanting to explore how they could get students in involved and engaged. So I do not think that active learning is discipline specific. And I, I think that there's so much research, I don't think, I know there is so much research that's been done on active learning, and it has been done across a panoply of disciplines. And the results are remarkably consistent. Students learn better when they're engaged. Thank you. That's one of the questions that I sometimes get is, well, that wouldn't work in my discipline. Yeah. But on the other hand, I have had experience where I've had more novice instructors who've tried to use an active learning technique, and then they come back and say, well, that didn't work. And then you start asking them, sort of, you know, sort of unpacking what they did, and you start realizing, you know, they were just trying to do a, a plug-and-play approach to active learning as opposed to just saying, so what's your context? What do the students need? When is it appropriate to do an active learning? I have often, in a kind of joking, uh, facile way, referred to a faculty approach to instructional change as the Nike approach, just do it. Yeah. Um, they go to a <laughs> workshop and they get a good idea, and by golly, they do it in class tomorrow. Yeah. And um, it doesn't work. Yeah. And it doesn't work because, first of all, you know, they haven't really thought about how they should do it, yeah. given you know, the style of their teaching. They haven't thought how it fits with the kind of content, the kind of content that they're using in that activity is yeah. going to make a difference. Does it fit the learning needs of students? Yeah. So I think that that feeds into resistance that both the students feel and yeah. the faculty members feel. And I think the case in point yeah. is group work. Students really don't like it when teachers put them in groups. And that's because faculty have not very effectively yeah. taught students how to function and perform in groups. Mm -hmm primarily because a lot of faculty are not real excited about working in groups. And I want to add that here at the Center for Teaching and Learning, a big part of my role when I meet individually with faculty or with groups of faculty is to, number one, offer them a number of potential strategies. Yes. And then once they have given me some insight into the strategies that fit best within their discipline, yeah. their content, their students' needs, and their persona as an instructor, how we can adapt that strategy to the needs of that particular course or in preparing students for a particular assignment. Mm -hmm. So it isn't a one-size-fits-all approach to a particular active learning strategy. Yeah. Just, I'd like to move on to the next question, and that is how students 
resist active learning. What does that look like? Well, here I can defer to my own discipline, which is communication. And a number of years ago in the 90s, uh, para California researchers, Kearney and Plax, really did a good job of parsing out the different kinds of resistance, not just to active learner to learner-centered teaching. It was a more generic kind of resistance to learning, really. Mm-hmm. And what they talked about were three main ways in which students do uh, resist. And the first is basically it's a nonverbal resistance, mm-hmm. um, not Nothing is said, but you ask students to get in groups, bunch with three or four people sitting around you, and there's virtually no response to that. Or there is a kind of a rolling of eyes and a kind of slow, beleaguered moving of the desks and establishing eye contact with people next to you. A whole variety of nonverbal behaviors that said, really, do we have to do this? And then sort of an interesting side piece of that, too, then, is have a teacher, if you cruise around and you come up to the group that is all spread apart and doesn't look like they want to talk to each other, and you say, Neil, what's the matter? Is there a problem here? The student, Neil, can say back to you, no, no, Dr. Weimer, everything's fine. We're a group. Okay, so now you've got a mixed message. You've got nonverbal communication telling you we don't want a group, but you've got a verbal communication which says we're fine, we're going to group. And I don't think I have to tell you which one of those we believe when we get the mixed messages. So then Kearney and Plex observed that the second major form of resistance was partial compliance. I always like to think of it this way. You hand out a group an existential question like the meaning of life, and you cruise by the group two minutes later, and everybody's relaxed in their chairs, and you inquire what's going on, and you get the curt answer, we're done. We're done, okay? Or they just barely do something. They're not really engaged with the task. They do it in a very kind of superficial way. And basic the message in that behavior is, okay, we're going to do this, but, you know, we're not going to do it well. And we're really hoping that our poor behavior in doing this will persuade the teacher to get back in doing what she's supposed to be doing, which is resistance. And then the third, as you might suspect, is that blatant open resistance where a student will actually make an accusatory verbal comment in class. Why do you put such tricky questions on this exam? Or we don't want, or the course that I taught on conflict resolution and negotiation in which the first day of class when I was going over the syllabus, a student raised its hand and said, I'm here to speak for the entire class. We do not want to have a textbook in this course. (laughs) You know, so that resistance, I think, is the one that teachers find most threatening because it is very confrontational. But it also, as Kearney and Plax uh, were able to document, is the least common form of resistance because, of course, it involves a certain amount of risk for the students, too. Yes, well, exactly. So I hear things like, what are we supposed to be doing? Will this be on the exam? or, Or the instructor in a very large lecture hall full of students who asks a question and is met with absolute silence. And the instructor stands there sweating Mm -hmm. in their dress shirt, hoping that the moment will pass and somebody will please just answer the question. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I I have another sort of favorite study on that uh, particular front, too, uh, which is, you know, sort of videotapes of these awkward encounters. One of the sort of default responses of the faculty member is to rephrase the question, repeat the question, but not word for word, using different words. Yeah. But what they did in this study was to parse out 
all the different questions to discover that the faculty person was really not asking the same question, but had in fact asked three or four different questions. And now students who aren't very confident and they know the answer to the first question don't have a clue what the question is. So I think the discomfort that that causes faculty, we need to be a little more observant of our own teaching. And as I always say, there's almost a little bit of a game there where you have really got to stand up, look relaxed, look in control, establish eye contact with anybody that will look at you, you know, look longingly, gesture openly, wait patiently, and just imagine that a good answer is going to happen. I think that you speak to something important there. I think that silence can be a very powerful thing in the classroom, and sometimes it feels like resistance to active learning is a bit of a standoff between the instructor and the students, and um, allowing students to have a moment to feel that discomfort as well as the instructor is not necessarily a bad thing. I think that's a very, very smart insight. And one of the things that my students have told me before when I have commented on the long pauses that saying, it's not that we're not doing anything. We're actually thinking about your question and we're just not ready yet to answer. Yeah. Um, so. My colleague Linda Shadio has a really nice uh, way of responding when she asks a question and no one is answering. She goes, well, let's talk about the question. Do you mm. have some questions about the question? Is there something about the question that is not clear? Mm. How can I help make this question one that's easy to answer? Mm. And once you get students started talking, then I think you kind of get over that hump. But I also think, right, Cosette, that it does feel kind of like a standoff, you know. Well, let's not answer this question. Let's see what she does. Most teachers can't stand that, you know. So they will either call on a student or they will answer the question themselves, which are both norms that establish a different uh, kind of communication dynamic in the classroom. I also often talk to faculty, too, about um, the collection and the repertoire of strategies and techniques that they have to respond to wrong or not very good answers, Mm -hmm. because I think if those are not constructive ways of responding, that that can really create an environment in the classroom where students are afraid to participate. You know, so a set of good, constructive ways. Oh, thank you for making that Mm -hmm. mistake. It's one that a lot of students make. And let me explain why it's wrong so uh, nobody in the class will make that mistake again, you know. I mean, just a a nice repertoire of uh, ways of handling those answers are good. Any other strategies for responding to resistance to active learning? Just asking feedback, anonymous feedback, can just diffuse any kind of resistance if you just yeah. respond to it. Yeah. And it's just it's fascinating how as soon as students feel like you're listening to them, it just diffuses so much. And I think a good question is really important there. Sometimes I hear faculty talk about whether mm. or not students liked something. You know, did you like that? That's not the right question. Mm. The question is, what was the impact of that activity, that assignment, that policy, that practice on your efforts to learn? Mm. Was that helpful to your learning? How could it be more helpful? Mm. Was it a barrier to your learning? So mm. that the focus of the conversation is on learning. I think that's really important, too. One of the strategies that I think is under uh, use Cosette is the just simple, clear explanations of the educational rationale behind 
why the teacher is having the students do that. And sometimes I think that can be teaching as telling, where the teacher says, I'm going to have you work in groups, and mm -hmm. here's the rationale. Sometimes I think if you turn the tables, you diffuse more mm -hmm. of the resistance. Because if you say to the students, well, why would a teacher have students do this activity in a group? Now, I think you got to have a little bit of thick skin, because I remember clearly the first time I asked that question, and the response I got was, well, you didn't have time to prepare a lecture last night. <laughs> uh, no, that's not the reason I'm having you do this in groups. Uh, can anybody think of another possible reason? But to have students starting to voice the reasons why, so that as a community of learners, you're crafting the rationale that's behind what it is that you're having students do. And you know, most of the time, students are sensible, particularly if you're talking about the future and the kind of professional skills that they're going to be needing. You're going to have to work with people, you know, in groups. And uh, you're not going to just get to pick your friends to do that. And you know what? I just got to tell you, I've served on lots of faculty committees, and I don't think I've been on one yet where there hasn't been a slacker. So groups have to learn how to deal with slackers. Oh, and you said another answer earlier in our conversation, Neil persistence. Resist the resistance, yeah. okay? Yeah. Uh, no, I'm not going to give up on group work. I'm going to yeah. give up on uh, team-based learning. We're going to carry on. I'm going to support your efforts. Yeah. Lots of other students have done this. There's lots of research that says this work. We're going to make it work in our class. Yeah. So hang in there. We're going to do this. Thank you so much for joining us, Neil Hovey and Marilyn Weimer, this afternoon in our podcast. Thank you.